A word of caution to our listeners. This episode includes language and the depiction of a murder that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. Campfire stories. They are the stuff of legends. They are what we bring out when we are communing with nature, sitting around a fire, toasting marshmallows, and simply entertaining one another before the lanterns go out. Chances are, you may have told a few yourself. How do we really know if these stories are based on a kernel of truth? Have you ever heard one that kept you lying awake all night in your tent, wondering, what if? Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Missing in the Carolinas. In the spirit of Halloween, I wanted to bring you a short story I wrote a few years ago. I was inspired to write this story after doing a deep dive into the murder of three Girl Scouts in Oklahoma in 1977. In the original case, the man arrested for the crimes was eventually acquitted in a sensational trial. I wanted to explore the story a bit more from a fictional perspective, setting it instead in the mountains of my home state of North Carolina and bringing in all the sensory elements that frighten us to our core. I also wanted to pose the question, what if the wrong man is convicted of a crime? Enjoy. Episode number 17, The Monster in the Woods. From his spot deep in the woods, he watched them, listened to the banal campfire songs, watched them hold hands and sway back and forth on the lawn. He zeroed in on one girl with hair so blonde it looked almost white. Although he couldn't clearly see her face because of his nearsightedness, something in the way she moved reminded him of Suzette, the little girl in his fourth grade class who had been the first to point out his new glasses on that day so long ago. Look at Davy and his big old glasses, she'd giggled. Four eyes, four eyes, she'd shouted in a sing-song voice while all the others had followed with the chant. Four eyes, four eyes, four eyes. He'd been so stunned he couldn't even respond. While he'd been so excited that his world had finally come into focus, he didn't like what his new glasses helped him see. Davy had ripped them off his face, stuffed them in his lunchbox, and never put them on again. Now he watched as the girl with blonde hair threw her head back and laughed as she grabbed the hand of another camper and began to walk to their tent. He stood up, brushing the grass off his knees as he glanced at the lightning flashing across the sky. The two little girls shuddered in the thunder from inside their canvas tent, labeled number seven, deep in the heart of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. They sat cross-legged on their cots, breathing in the damp smell of wet leaves that filled the air, intent on their work. Nine-year-old Tammy Morgan bent over her notepad, pencil scratching across the lined paper, occasionally stopping to tug at the ends of her shiny blonde pigtails and chew on the end of her eraser. July 8, 1978. Dear Mom and Dad, since there is not much to do here, I thought I would write you a letter from Girl Scout Camp. I made some new friends tonight, and one of them is sharing a tent with me. Her name is Patricia. She is very nice. It's storming right now, and I'm scared. I hope tomorrow is better. I miss everyone and wish I could come home. Please hug Pookie and Bear for me and tell Christopher to stay out of my stuff while I'm not there. Love, Tammy. Ten-year-old Tammy 
16-year-old Patricia Foxcroft pushed her headband further back on top of her head, a gesture she often used when she was deep in thought. She wrapped her favorite flannel blanket from home closer around her as she scribbled, pausing for a moment to look up. Hey, Tammy, do you want a piece of gum? Sure, the younger girl started to climb off her cot. Psych, I'm only kidding. I'm going to ask for some in my care package, though, so maybe we'll get some later in the week. Tammy pouted. Not funny. She tossed her pillow over at Patricia, but then relaxed on her cot ever so slightly. July 8th, 1978. Hi, family. I'm at Camp Table Rock, and of course it is raining on my first night here. My roommate Tammy is younger than me, but we had fun tonight at the campfire before the storm started. Tomorrow we have a full day planned, so I'm going to bed soon. I hope the thunder stops so I can sleep. It's scary and the ground will be so wet tomorrow. Please send a care package soon. With bazooka, please. Two weeks is going to be a long time to be away from you all. Trish Tammy ripped her letter out of the notepad, folded it, and tucked it into the envelope her mother had addressed for her. Patricia stowed her letter under her cot, adjusting her pillow and blanket as the sound of rain pelting against their tent continued. Are you scared? Tammy's voice from the other side of the tent was small, as if trying to sound not like a baby. Patricia tossed the girl's pillow back over to her. Nope. She pulled off her headband and stowed it in her duffel bag. We'll be fine. Remember, Missy and Jennifer are just across the yard in their tent with the other counselors. From her cot, tucked inside her red sleeping bag, Tammy nodded her head. Patricia leaned over to the small table between their cots and put out the red hurricane lantern, leaving the inside of the tent in complete darkness. Patricia felt as if she had just fallen asleep when the glow of a flashlight swept across the opening of the tent. Thinking one of the counselors had come to check on them, she sat up in her cot, blinking. A man's face was peering inside, and he slowly made his way in, water dripping from his long, greasy-looking hair onto the shoulders of his denim shirt. He had on a pair of funny-looking glasses, and he held his index finger to his lips as a signal for her to keep quiet. Her mouth bone dry, she licked her lips, telling herself he was only there to see if they were okay, even though the tent was starting to smell like the whiskey her father liked to drink when he got home from work. Then, as a bolt of lightning flashed behind him, she saw the glint of a knife in his right hand. Melissa Harris tossed and turned in the tent she was sharing with another counselor, Jennifer Walker. The rain had continued to pour throughout the evening, and she was worried about all the Girl Scouts in their tents, as they were spread out at least 20 yards away from each other in the camp. She had fallen asleep for a short while, but was now awake again. From across the tent, her roommate Jennifer was snoring so loudly she sounded as if she was being strangled. Melissa shivered. The rain had just started to let up and Melissa let herself relax a tiny bit. She peered at the watch still strapped to her wrist and saw that it was close to midnight, the witching hour. She settled back against her pillow when a faint scream pierced the night. Melissa sat up, heart pounding in her ears. Then, another scream. Mama! Mama! Fear seized Melissa. She unzipped her sleeping bag and shoved her feet into her sneakers, stumbling over to where Jennifer still slept soundly.
Jennifer! Jennifer! She shook the girl by the shoulder. Jennifer continued to snore, oblivious to Melissa's voice. Damn it, space cadet! Muttering under her breath, she picked up her flashlight and peeked through the tent into the stillness of the night. Nothing. She clicked it on and took a tentative step off the platform and onto the soft, mushy earth. She shone the light in a circle around her, pausing on each of the five other tents in the vicinity. Hearing a twig snap behind her, she jumped, dropping the flashlight. Trembling, she reached down, fumbling around for a moment before gripping her fingers around the plastic, thumb pressing down onto the switch firmly. Then, with the hair standing up on the back of her neck, she headed towards the closest tent. Melissa put her ear up next to the opening, hearing nothing. She didn't want to peek into the tent and risk waking up one of the girls. She was headed toward the next tent when lightning flashed overhead, illuminating the tops of the trees and making the branches look like dry, brittle bones. Melissa hesitated, trying to squelch her longtime fear of being struck by lightning. She turned her head back to the tent, trembling and conflicted. Had the cries of Mama Mama been in her imagination? Had she mistaken the cries of an owl or a wild animal in the night? She didn't want to admit to herself that she was too scared to go walking around alone to investigate further. Screw it. She sighed and turned back toward the tent, praying she would be able to get back to sleep and that nothing was really wrong. At 6.30 a.m., Huey Moore, a maintenance worker at Camp Table Rock, was headed to do a sweep of the bathhouse, his cleaning supplies in the back of his golf cart. He was halfway to his destination when he came across two sleeping bags in the middle of the dirt path. What the hell, he muttered under his breath, bringing the golf cart to a sudden stop. He climbed down, pulling his shoulder-length hair back away from his face with an elastic band and wiping his forehead with a bandana he then stuck in the back pocket of his jeans. Despite the early hour, the humidity was already setting in. Birds chirped in the trees, but their sing-song voices faded into the background when the rusty smell of iron overpowered his nose. That and the hundreds of flies buzzing around the sleeping bags. Huey hesitated, swatting away at the flies where he could, and then bent over the first bag. He reached out to touch a patch that looked like it had dried blood on the outside of it, blending in with the color of the bag. Huey stumbled backward into the dirt as he saw a tiny hand through the opening. It wasn't moving. He wiped at his forehead with the bandana again, dizzy with fear. He felt the outside of the other sleeping bag and found yet another unmoving figure. Then he turned and ran back to the golf cart, hoping he could get to the phone in the main office before any of the other campers or counselors woke up. Because of its desolate location, it took the first responding officers and ambulance far too long to reach the camp. It could have been 30 minutes, but for Huey and the other counselors, it seemed like three hours. They soon realized there was no need for an ambulance at all. Tammy Morgan and Patricia Foxworth were dead. Detective Pete Tower walked away from the sleeping bags, visibly shaken. The first responding officer sat on a damp log a few feet away, his head between his knees, a puddle of vomit on the ground beside him. 
I only looked in one of the sleeping bags, he'd confessed to Tower. Her blonde hair was so matted with blood it completely changed the color. Her eyes, it looked like she was just sleeping. And the flies, sweet Jesus, the flies, they were everywhere. By the amount of blood it appears they were stabbed, Tower told his partner, Detective Lou Evans. I'm pretty sure someone would have heard a gunshot go off in the camp. It had to have happened in tent number seven. There's evidence of blood spatter and signs of a struggle in there. And then the perp dragged their bodies out here so they'd be found right away. Evans rubbed the stubble on his chin, trying not to think of his own seven-year-old daughter still safe in her own bed at home. She's never going to sleepaway camp, he thought to himself. That's not all, Tower said. Their hands and feet were bound with duct tape, and there's signs of... Well, let's just say whoever did this is a sick, twisted bastard. They weren't even 11 years old. Shit. At that moment, a young woman who couldn't have been more than 19 years old approached them, weeping and clutching a tissue in one fist. Are you Melissa Harris? Evans asked. She nodded, blowing her nose with the tissue. What can you tell us about last night? Melissa glanced over her shoulder. My tentmate, Jennifer, is supposed to be headed down here too, but I don't know what's taking her so long. Jennifer! Tower put a comforting hand on her shoulder. Okay, I'm sorry. This is just so... Melissa took a deep breath. The girls turned in around 8.30 p.m. after the campfire. They were so cute, holding hands as they made their way up to the tent. They said they were going to write letters home. And then the thunderstorm started up, and I had a hard time sleeping because I was worried about them. And then I did fall asleep, but I woke up. Did something specific wake you up? Tower prodded her. I thought I heard a scream or a cry or something. I woke up and swore someone was yelling, Mama! Mama! It was around midnight or so. I got up with my flashlight and looked around for a few minutes, but I didn't get very far. I didn't see anything, but I was scared, too. This is probably all my fault. She choked back a sob. Evans snorted. This is not your fault, young lady. Don't even try to tell yourself that. I would like to know why a nine- and ten-year-old girl were sleeping in a tent alone, but that's something we'll have to talk to the Girl Scouts about, not you. Melissa sniffled into her tissue, then glanced up over Tower's shoulder. Oh, Jennifer, over here. Jennifer Walker looked disoriented and squinted in their direction, still wearing her pajama shorts and Star Wars nightshirt she had slept in, her red curls in a disarray. Melissa frowned. Where are your glasses? What's wrong? That's just it, Jennifer said, stumbling down the hill to where they stood. I looked all over the tent and I can't find them. I know I set them on the table between our cots before we went to bed. I can't see anything without them! She rubbed her eyes in frustration. From his spot on the log, the responding officer lifted his head. Your glasses are missing? Jennifer nodded. That's the weird thing, he said, standing up. When we did the initial check to make sure everyone else here at the campsite was okay, we found several pairs of eyeglasses scattered about. Some of them were right outside tents. Others were near the bathhouse. Eyeglasses? Tower was puzzled. Do you think some whack job was wandering around the camp trying on different pairs of women's eyeglasses so he could see? All three men shook their heads in disbelief. Camp Table Rock was shut down immediately, never to be opened again. No one could ever imagine staying in a place where two innocent young Girl Scouts were bound, sexually assaulted, 
and stabbed to death. Their parents received copies of the letters Tammy and Patricia had written that night. The originals remained with the investigators. The bright yellow crime scene tape remained in the area where the girls' bodies were found, flapping in the breeze and eventually fading over time. For weeks after the crime, the local newspapers and TV stations led with updates about that monster in the woods. Camp Table Rock officials had presented their official statement. The parents had been interviewed, with Tammy Morgan's father Joe pleading the most for anyone with information to come forward. Investigators said they were conducting searches in the woods for the perpetrator. Then, the stories began to fade away. Until six months after the crime, when there was a break in the case. Holy shit, Evans cried out as he opened a manila envelope on his desk at the police station. From across the room, Tower rubbed his forehead and sipped from the cup of cold coffee he was using as a paperweight. What is it? Fingerprints from the crime scene at Camp Table Rock. They were taken from the duct tape on Patricia's hands. Match a convict from Tennessee named Clark Simpson. He escaped from jail there two years ago and has been on the run ever since. So then we have to track down the Simpson person and see if he's still in the area, Tower said, sloshing coffee out of his cup. He could be anywhere by now. Well, I think we may be able to track him down, Evans said, pulling a sheet of paper from the envelope. Take a look at his mugshot. The face of Huey Moore, the maintenance worker who had found the bodies, stared up at them with a much shorter haircut. Huey Moore, otherwise known as Clark Simpson, who had a rap sheet with the conviction of statutory rape on it. Moore was living a few towns away, continuing to live under his assumed identity, working as a janitor for a grocery store. When the police showed up to arrest him, he first tried to run out through the back door of the store, then screamed his innocence for all to hear, as police officers tackled him to the ground and handcuffed him in the alley next to the garbage dumpsters. It took another year for Clark Simpson to be brought to trial for the murders of Patricia and Tammy. Through it all, he remained steadfast in his answers to the prosecutor's questions. How did your fingerprints get on the girls' bodies? I was the first to find them. I reached into the sleeping bags to fill for a pulse on Patricia. Why did you leave Tennessee after your rape conviction and change your name? It was a statutory rape conviction. My girlfriend was 16 years old and I was 20. Her parents went nuts and had charges brought against me. Everyone in our town accused me of being a pedophile. And I wasn't. I knew what would happen to me in prison. So I ran. Created a new identity. The Girl Scout camp didn't do a decent background check or a fingerprint check. If they had, they would have figured out who I was. But that's not my fault. And it doesn't mean I'm a murderer. When it came time for the jury to deliberate, there were many unresolved questions. Simpson had 20-20 vision. It was on his medical record. Who had been rifling through the tents the night of the murders looking for eyeglasses, and why? With the limited testing that could be done in the late 1970s, it was determined that the semen left behind at the crime belonged to someone with an O-positive blood type. Simpson's blood type was AB-positive, so they didn't match. Simpson's former girlfriend had also testified that he had never been violent with her or shown signs of sexual deviance. Her parents simply hadn't approved of him having a relationship with their teenage daughter. The members of the jury were torn. They wanted to bring closure to the girls' families. 
but they felt there simply was not enough evidence to convict. Clark Simpson was acquitted. He still had to serve out time for his initial statutory rape conviction, though. As officers accompanied him to the van that would transport him back to Tennessee, a wild-eyed man with disheveled clothes burst through the crowd behind the courthouse. He was brandishing a pistol. Simpson was dead before he could realize the shooter was Joe Morgan, the father of Tammy, determined to find justice for his daughter, no matter what the cost. That night, as Joe sat in the county jail, awaiting his arraignment, Tammy's mother, Sue, tucked her remaining child, Christopher, into bed, finally turning off the bedside lamp she had left on for so many months. It's okay now, she said in a soothing voice to her son. The monster in the woods is finally dead. A few weeks later, two couples in their early 20s decided it would be fun to camp out in the mountains. With nothing but the starry sky overhead and all the beer they could drink, they laughed throughout the night. They roasted hot dogs on sticks over an open flame and drank entirely too much beer. He watched from the woods, knowing they would not be expecting him. While he couldn't see their faces, he knew who they were. They were just like the kids who had teased him in high school, who had imitated his strange cadence of speech and the stiff way he walked behind his back when they thought he wasn't looking. The ones who put a dead, smelly fish in his locker and wrote him fake love notes from a secret admirer. The ones who'd attended the Friday night bonfires he'd never been invited to. He'd given up on those people a long time ago. In his gloved hands, Davy held a hammer and a roll of duct tape. He would wait until they were asleep, just as he had with Tammy and Patricia. And then he would incapacitate the young men and assault the women in a way that was now becoming familiar. A female voice echoed through the woods toward him, and her words brought a smile to his face. Are you sure it's okay to sleep out here? What about the monster in the woods? Don't be a chicken, a male voice replied. They caught that guy, remember? Even though the jury screwed up the verdict, and then one of the dads went all vigilante, that dude is dead. You're totally safe with me. The voices drifted off as the couples went in and out of their tents, preparing for bed. They extinguished the campfire, with the smell of smoke filling the air. It had rained recently, bringing with it all the dampness he craved after months of sweltering heat. He shifted from foot to foot, waiting. The lanterns went out, first in the tent to the left, and then in the tent to the right. He pushed the pair of women's prescription eyeglasses up on his nose. After so many years of viewing the world through blurred eyes, those glasses had helped him clearly see the fear in Tammy's eyes as he'd stood over her cot that night. He'd whispered that line from the famous fairy tale, The better to see you with, my dear. The sound of his boots squeaked on the ground as he made his way into the young couple's camp. The monster in the woods had returned. This brings us to the conclusion of bonus episode number 17. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't listened to episode 16, Ghostly Tales from the Carolinas, I encourage you to check that one out too. Thank you.